0: Hey corn growers, welcome back to another episode of Keeping It Independent. I've got a couple new corn breeders here today um, that I'm excited to introduce to you. We've got Bob Jackson, Action Jackson, that's going to be your radio handle from now on, Uh, and we've got Chris Icorn with me today. So on our last episode, uh, we spent some time with uh, Devin Nichols talking about the domestication of corn, uh, kind of the history of where we got, where we came from, uh, to where we are today, going through some of the breeding processes, selection, hybridization processes. Uh, and if I understand correctly, Jackson, you were around for the domestication? Whipples domestication, Oh, yes. okay. Okay. So, uh, Jackson is our veteran corn breeder. Yep. And the been longest for, one. Been here for a long time. So, if, if you want to go start off first, uh, just kind of introduce yourself. Uh, how long you've been here?
1: Yeah, so Bob Jackson, uh, I grew up within five miles of the plant in Atkinson and actually started working in pollination uh, labs when I was still in school in 1983. Got kind of to be kind of a special kind of crazy to do that. So,
0: <laughs> Chris, how long you been with Whistles?
2: I started with Whistles uh, in 2010, so we're into, I guess we're going to year 14 now. And prior to that, I was with uh, some other companies. I, I started kind of my career in corn with uh, a smaller foundation seed company called Holden's. And then they, in the in some of the buyouts of the late 90s, Monsanto acquired them. So I kind of got rolled up under that whole, I guess, buyout. During that time, though, um, Wiffle's actually one of my customers for a long time. They were my contact to, to talk about uh, genetics and advising that sort of thing. Went to school at Iowa State, grew up in West Central Iowa. My family actually had a small seed company. My grandpa. My mom's side and his brother started a seed company back in the mid to late 50s. And so that side and my, my dad's side had uncles that were
0: in the seed industry.
2: So I've kind of been in the seed industry my whole life.
0: So, uh, with the last episode I mentioned before, we spent a lot of time talking about domestication, hybridization process. Some of the things I want to focus on today is, you know, especially with the modern, I guess what we would call the modern era of hybridization. Uh, where is our yield coming from? Kind of some of the things that we're doing to push genetic gain. Um, some questions on how we stack up compared to national yield gains. But as a quick recap, could I have one of you guys kind of, you know, we don't have to go back clear to Teocente, but uh, from land races or open pollinated varieties moving forward, and, and when did we hit those benchmarks and, and what did that mean for? Uh, corn breeding, I guess, in terms of genetic gains.
2: In the big scheme of things, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. What I mean by that is a long time ago, people much smarter than I am saw the, what corn could be. If you go back to the 1800s, we're in the time of open pollinated um, just for varieties, land varieties, and, and people are saving seed from the best years visually they see, maybe a little selection in the field, but really it's mostly a, an ear thing. and So There's a slope there of gain they're making gains, but it's not much. I, I I don't even quote me, but that goes on through early 1900s and some of the pioneers, no pun intended, but literally Henry Wallace and that group of pioneer. They started probably the process of, you know, figuring out that you could hybridize corn in those early days uh, when they were figuring out hybridization, the plants were not very inbred plants that they would come up with were not very usable think about double cross uh, time period, that probably rolls from the thirties through the seventies, that's another slope. So that was a big, that was a big jump to go from open pollinated to actually double cross hybrids. It was a huge gain. you know, as inbreds got better, we could go into single crosses, which really started to take over in the seventies. And that was a whole nother slope. And then, and then probably the most recent one we've seen, that's been a changes uh, that slope of that curve is when GMO showed up protecting the yield
1: that was potentially there from robbing insects. As I look at genetic gain, you know, it's probably Illinois and Iowa, the center parts of the Corn Belt, you know, it's under two bushel an acre a year, but it's pretty close. Nationally it's probably over a bushel. So we still keep genetically probably adding a bushel, throwing the different weather extremes in and out and just looking at what genetic potential is. I mean, if you look at the, uh, that there was a new national record right set this year for corn yields yep. right yep. and it went up not just one or two bushels it was another 20 bushel 30 bushel jump so hadn't been a couple years well get the right yield you can still pop this thing up pretty high
0: yep right right hybrid right environment um yeah and, and that's been typical of when those records get broken right they don't they don't move by a tenth they move by 15 20 bushel so that's nationally. I mean, looking at everywhere we go grow corn in the in the US, kind of getting into what you guys do here at Wiffles, how do we rank ourselves?
1: I don't know that I look at it based on am I gaining networks? I'm am I gaining versus what I've been selling? Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what I mean. So like, com- so to basically,
1: what basically there's yep. no reason that we would do breeding 95%, 98% of everything we've ever tested as hybrid gets thrown away because it's not better than what you're currently selling. Right. It's not better than the parent combinations. You're just looking for those. Chris uses the term a lot, incremental improvements. We got this thing. We tweaked an inbred, right? What did we do to get four more bushel to get 5% less green snap? What did we do? Those little bitty things like that to try to get, hey, we got a new hybrid that's ten bushel better than our best hybrid. You know, with percentages, it gets smaller. Yep. Because our yields are getting higher.
0: And maybe you guys don't remember this, but we were at a meeting, and I'm. It was I want to say it was over the last ten years, so a relatively short window. But I believe we were tracking. It was over two percent, like two point maybe or excuse me, bushels. <clears throat> it was two point two bushels per acre per generation, I guess, release, kind of release class is how we looked at it. So that's good. I mean, that, that tracks pretty close, if not to above, uh, probably the central corn belt, you know, the I states for sure.
2: One of the kind of dirty little secrets about corn breeding, we think we're making more yield and we are, and don't get me wrong, but the way to look at it is the dirty little secret is what we're doing is really helping plants adjust to being pushed more. You know, it's it's not it's not yield per plant. You know, if you gave if you gave that 1974 hybrid, a three by three foot area versus today's, I'll bet the 1974 hybrid would yield more on a per plant basis. But what we were asking plants to do is be crowded. Your nearest neighbor is right next to you. And now, can you not suffer lodging issues? Can you flower synchronously? Can you fight for the nutrients you need and still put on that same ear without giving up? That thing so that's to me a large portion of our breeding improvements have just been
0: stress tolerance, right? And, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, Chris or Bob, if you want to jump in. But you know, if you took, let's say we take W twenty six is a big hybrid for wiffles and planted it next to W seventy eight seventy six today, the the ears on those look very very similar, do they not?
1: Yeah. So well. The W-26 has got a lot more of a flex type longer here, right? Just because at that time, you were probably only 20,000 plants acre, Right. And if you plant the two of them at 20,000, both hybrids, 20,000, 7876 still has a little yield gain over W-26, mainly because it's got probably better disease tolerances too. And just because of all that selection, what the big difference is, is when you plant them at 36,000, 7876 is making 350 bushel, and the W26 tries to yield that much, and then the stocks blow out. The big thing, like Chris, that selection, we've helped them handle the stresses we've put them under. And that population is one thing we're doing. People going, I want a bigger ear, I want two ears per plant. And I always tell people, your stock would have to be too big. Your combine couldn't chew it down. You know, there's just some limitations to uh, to doing that. So it's all about improving plants per acre. And if you think about it in the future, I know a lot of people are on 30-inch rows, but to me, a little bit, we're kind of almost reaching a population row spacing plateau because you get past 38,000 in 30-inch 30 rows and the plants are feeling the stress of their neighbor. So what other ways, if you look back to when we switched from 38-inch rows in the 80s, I'm going to call it, we were stuck at probably 28,000 or 24,000 because you couldn't crowd those plants anymore within the row. So I know equipment's expensive, but when I look at it, there's, there's probably going to be some, a plateau to, we can figure out how to do something a little bit different for equal, more equal spacing.
0: Well, and that's a good point you bring up Bob, because we've, we've, you know, many of us have arguably seen this in our lifetime, 38 or 36 inch rows. Like you said, you're going to reach a critical point where you cannot crowd any more plants into that row. Through breeding, what you guys are doing, other breeders are doing the same thing, making a single plant more tolerant to stress in that field. So, specifically on that topic, uh, you talked about population before. What are what is, I guess maybe expand in the breeding program. What what are we doing to kind of kind of push that along or test it in some of those those situations? So, back in the early days of breeding,
1: when you're making self pollinations. Like Devin probably talked about, you put the paper bag over the tassel, collect the pollen, and you've covered up the ear shoot before the silks came out. Well, early on, everyone cut back those ear shoots to get bigger ears. So you would take a knife and just cut back the top of the leaf sheaths on the ear, and then you get more silks and you get one pollination and get a bigger ear. When they were doing that, they actually were selecting, they didn't know they were doing it, but they probably were cutting off the extra husk And it actually made things less drought tolerant because they probably didn't realize how much extra hucks they were doing or that the silks couldn't push hard. So there was a, a a real change, just a simple thing. Like don't cut it, wait for the silks to come out so that you would try to make that synchronization happen. And so that people ask, well, why are hybrids better today against drought than maybe the eighties part of it, just a simple little thing like that, that, don't cut silks. You know, we don't force things on those type of things on a selfing because we want that synchronization. And if you look at today's modern birds, a lot of them are soaking a day or two above before you start to see pollen. So you're getting that ability to because silks are so much moisture stress that that's where you're going to get the silks to come up. So
0: especially in a drought, a lot of cases that's a good thing to have. You know, have yeah. a silks push first. Yeah, and bigger water. To so,
2: another aspect to what Bob's saying is, I think I heard it described once, and it, it's a good analogy is like breeding for corn is like standing on a beach ball. The point of that is to stay balanced. The, the minute you try to overemphasize one trait, you, you lose your balance, right? So, yeah, you're chasing yield, but you can't chase it at the expense of RM. You can't chase it at the expense of stocks or roots or poor test. I mean, there's a, there's, there's no limit to the number of categories you can measure and you've got to keep a balanced product. Cause if you don't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work practically in a cornfield,
0: right?
1: I could get cost hybrids that are Gauss resistant, or I could get hybrids that are gray leaf spot resistant, or I could get them that they're never green snap. But if you're only looking at just one of those things, you lose out on something else. Yep. So that whole keeping that balanced approach so <clears throat> important to making a long term progress. So you don't find the, one year wonder hybrid that was wonderful one year and the next year you wonder what happens to it. So <laughs> and Eric, you, you asked, this you started with you asked about the W26
2: versus today's hybrid, right? Yep. So yep. just to reset a little bit, those hybrids um, from 40, 50 years ago, partly genetics and partly was just function, much flatter leaf structure, taller hybrids, rangier hybrids, because they had more space to do it express. So what happens is, as we start to push populations, what does better? Well, um, the, the structure of leaves going upright, the structure of plants getting shorter, so they are less lodging uh, tendencies. And so if you saw today's hybrid versus 30, 48 years ago, you'd really notice those leaf angles coming upright. And a lot of that gets attributed to sunlight capture, which I, I think is right. But in the last couple of years, I've really also added to that. You, you've been out on a dry morning when there's dew and you've seen that little ring of water. So all that's happening is that water on the leaves is running right down the stalk to that, that root area. I think as much as sunlight, that's also, we're asking these plants to do more. It's a it's a moisture capture. Whether it's dew or rainfall, those plants that are more upright leaf structure, they're getting water right to where they need it.
0: So yeah, we, we talked about you know kind of some of the changes, I, I like that call out on the, uh, I think it, it's a rectifile versus more plantophile flat leaves. Some of the things we're doing with population, I know in a breeding program, we are, we're, we're pushing some pretty high populations just, just to try and simulate stress. So how, how high are we pushing them?
1: In the actual inbreeding, some of those places, they can be pushed very high. 12 plants in a foot but it's all about putting that stress on plants in hybrid testing we uh we tested a higher population rate all the way through because there's two things we need to harvest early so we can make timelines for winter nurseries so at a higher population you get a little more stress and so it causes a little more stock lodging a little more probably plants just giving up and so that's one way we can simulate stock lodging i always say that our research plots if we start to see stock lodging, the farmer's probably going to see it in two weeks in yep. his normal, yep. under field. normal, normal under under his more normal yeah. thing, because we're trying to, to to simulate it so we can keep our timelines and, and, and go fast and make the next generation. We also do uh, have done some things like just leave some reps and let them stand, you know, yeah. later just to see what really it looks like in that late end of harvest. Uh, you know, it's just another way
0: to look at things. You mentioned the, the leaf architecture, Chris, is, is there anything else from a physiological standpoint? I know there's been some chatter on, um, in particular, I think a lot of our more modern hybrids, you know, when you think about yield components to, to actually build bushels per acre, you've mm-hmm. got plants per acre kernels per, per row number of rows on an ear. And then the last component being kernel depth, mm-hmm. have we, I guess since since you guys have been doing this at Wiffles in particular, are we noticing anything, any any changes in any of those yield components that's important to modern hybrids, maybe more so than anything else? Yeah.
2: One of the things is this is just a generality. Through plant breeding, we've selected or try to select away from things that um there's a tendency under stress for ears to cut size. Okay. Yep. So how does that happen? Well, it can be all the things you mentioned, it can be kernel rows. It can be length, it can be butt size. So, the the, the the bottom of that ear will get pinched down. So, all those things, um, you can make a little bit of progress in the inbreds, uh, selecting for those things, but really you need to see it in the hybrid and that expression to, to have the proof in the pudding. So, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in the last, probably in the last two decades, and Bob, you've probably seen this too, is as an industry, we've traded a little bit of kernel test weight for kernel depth. So, We have a lot of hybrids nowadays that aren't these really hard, uh, high test weight hybrids that you might have seen in the 80s. They have a lot more depth to them. They have a lot more chance to have um, grain fill and take advantage. Maybe they're not always deep, but when the conditions are good, they can really add to that grain fill through a kernel depth. And that's not necessarily related to kernel rows because you can have deep kernel hybrids on what you consider narrow ears and you can have deep kernel hybrids on which you consider girthy ears, but they all add to that, that yield.
0: I know I'm seeing more hybrids that they, like you said, conditions turn out well. They've got a good supply of nitrogen, water, late season. We fended off disease fairly well. You, you crack some of these ears open and there's nothing but a pencil for a cob. So it, it can be a little deceiving because those those ears, you walk past them and they might not look like anything impressive, but you break them open and and a lot of that yields coming from kernel depth. Um, And I would probably argue more so in modern hybrids than, than have the past.
2: And consistency because the other thing is what we, it's really easy to get fooled. I mean, 5086 is a perfect example. You can walk into a fifty-eighty field 5086 and be underwhelmed just because they don't seem like big ears. If you take the time and look they're, they're at the same node down the row every ear is exactly the same so you're not losing anything from variability there and to your point that that kernel depth and that cob are, are hidden you can't see that until you crack ears open there's another physiological thing i was thinking about when you asked about the differences today and some of that is root, root architecture we don't talk about it a lot um,
0: no one likes to dig roots. No,
2: it's, it's not obvious. It's obvious. <laughs> no one does dig roots. <laughs>
1: um,
2: you know, there, there's probably some like overarching categories. We can say tap rooted, we can say fiber rooted, you know, kind of flat or pancake. Um, there's probably a, a sweet spot in there of a little bit of both. So there's a, there's a moderate where it's got the, enough taprooted nature to, to mine and, 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 and go deep after moisture and nutrients, but fibrous enough that, you know, it's not one of these hybrids from
1: 30 years ago that lays flat when the wind blows. Right.
0: Right.
1: So I want to step back though, because I think that Chris hit on the point, but if I think of hybrids in the eighties, before we had corn, uh, resistant hybrids, we had things that finished quicker and we didn't know about fungicides. And so you had to get done before the corn borer did so much damage that you didn't get a yield. Yep. And so if I look at today's hybrids, we have a lot more hybrids that are, I'm going to call them a later finisher where boy, that last two weeks of grain fill you're putting on hundreds of bushels per acre. And that, you know, that's why fungicides work yep. is because you're able to keep that plant filling longer and there's no corn borer, drilling down and reducing your yield by 50 bushel. So there's some things that, and that's why that graph that you talked about, there's some biotech did a lot Yep. before when you used to have to wash your windows every 30 miles at night, because the corn borer moths were covering them up. There was big, big gains there. Yep. And then the other things like, oh, then we can get bigger yields. Well, we may need to feed the plant better. Oh, we may need to keep it healthier longer. This is part of the breeding process when people ask me, you know, oh, there's climate change or things are getting different. I'm like, we've been dealing with changes and it's just part of your breeding process. There'll be something else come along that will keep our slope even higher. You know, one of the technologies that came along that altered corn breeding and we didn't even,
2: you know, you couldn't have predicted this was the combine. So you think, well, what the hell's that got to do with it, right? Well, think about what. The farming practice was before they had of the combine. People were picking ear corn. Yeah, you need it to heal. You need it to get to black layer so it makes corn and that sort of thing. But you're really not worried about dry down. And you're really, you know, you're not worried about if, if you have to pick a little wet, you can throw it in the crib and dry. What the combine did in, stor- in storage and stuff is it forced growers to, or I should say, it forced plant breeders and companies to, to, to start focusing on other things like dry down. And... Standability, I can pick a hybrid. If I'm picking ear corn, I can pick it wet and early and avoid some, some lodging problems and avoid dry down issues. Now, all of a sudden I've got a whole nother selection criteria that I got to worry about as a, as a breeder, as, as an industry, we got to worry about, we got to get this corn down to a moisture where we don't have to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to pick this at 32%. We got to let it dry down in the low twenties early teens. So number one, it's got to stand longer. Number two, how are we going to get to dry down? So then we got to focus on opening those husks. Oh, yep. You know, all of a sudden we're worried about senescence and plant health with senescence. So whole different dynamic that those breeders probably through the 30s, 40s, and 50s didn't even contemplate. contemplate.
0: Right. How does our corn breeding program aid in some of those hybrid management recommendations? And you kind of just talked about this, that we're you know, myself and the rest of the product and agronomy team are delivering to to growers. You know, when I started, my first
1: year was in 1988 in the research program and did a population study that year and we were 20,000, 24,000 and super high was 28. Okay, so things have changed a little bit. Uh, Now you've got 28, that's a failure. Yields were probably 150 bushel averages. If you hit a 200, that was a winner, right? So things have changed over the years. Populations went up, yields have went up, farming practices have improved. We're cranking out more bushel. But one thing that hasn't changed is the weather changes every year. We do get some different diseases. Got to keep screening for them to understand what's going on out there. So as I look at that, that's just part of our deal. I mean, I have my own home farm. I'm looking for the perfect hybrid. Been doing this for a long time. I haven't found the perfect hybrid that has no faults. Right. If it was. We could sell one variety to the entire world, and life would be great. But it just doesn't exist. That way. one of our
2: secret sauces or unfair advantages at Wiffles is that, as a breeding team, well, we have a breeding team, <laughs> number one. But we're very, very closely linked to the whole, to the whole company, to the whole process. What I mean by that is kind of a womb to tomb. Yeah, we're starting breeding projects. Yeah, we're running breeding projects. Yes, we're identifying what we think should become the next workflowfuls project or helping in that process but then we're going to the next step also of doesn't do any good if i know all this information about a product i've got to get it out of my head to somebody else so they can do something with it right and so understanding how to represent it and categorize it and then teach somebody else teach our salespeople, teach a grower there's a little bit of a vested interest there when i when i make a recommendation or i say hybrid is going to do something You're writing a check that you hope your buck can cash, right? So there's a vested interest there of this working out. And so, and then, and then it's just a big feedback loop, you know, it's build a better mousetrap. How did this hybrid do? Well, it's pretty good. I wish it had better fill in the blank. Hey, back to the drawing board. And so I think that's one of the things that gets overlooked, makes our company very successful is that really tight knit interaction between all the segments, the breeding, the product development, agronomy, sales. I mean,
0: it's just, we're all working together to, to, to put out the best product possible. For our listeners out there, if you have any follow-up questions or anything you want us to discuss in the future, uh, as always, reach out to us at agronomy at uh, Stay safe out there this winter and thank you for listening.